0: I think What really irritated me <clears throat> about this was the uh, just the, the piping hot takes on Twitter, just from complete know nothing morons. Welcome,
1: welcome, to the third session session. We are, we are, we can use this, we we use this for like this. this.
0: This is going to be
1: Welcome to the third session of Vaufe Bunga Bunga. I'm Philip Cunliffe. I tweet at the Philippics. And joining me this week on an unusual new combination is uh, my friend Alex from Sao Paulo. Alex.
2: Hi, I'm Alex. Uh, I tweet at alex double underscores 1789
1: and george hoar who joins us from london
0: yeah thanks for saying my friend alex and then just george but we'll <laughs> we we won't yeah fine so i i tweet also at uh polwek with a q so that's me
1: hey guys so uh what we're talking about this week we're talking about a strange fascination that has gripped the contemporary left without anyone really asking any questions about it. And that fascination is with the Kurds. More specifically the struggle of the ethnic Kurdish region in Syria, where they have um okay, I just realized I don't know how to pronounce is it Rojava? Rajava. It must be Rajava,
0: right? We'll go with it's either. That.
1: yeah? Okay. In the, You're the
0: chair. You should have done the research on this. I
1: so. know. It never occurred to me. I was thinking it's in Spain somewhere, but actually it's in Syria.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: so That's I'm sort guessing. Of expertise you come for, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know, like I've got a PhD in international politics. So I'm guessing, like, if it's not in Spain and it's actually in the Middle East, then, yeah, it should be Rajava. Anyway, the Rojava, the so-called Rojava Revolution, where you have um, a militia, the YPG, uh, most closely associated with the PKK, which has been fighting for Kurdish secession in neighbouring Turkey, north of the north of Syria. And what's remarkable about this is that this particular aspect of a now extremely bloody lethal and long-running civil war has attracted so much interest and um, sustained political support, Um, to the degree that you have, um, perhaps for the first time um, in a very long time, that you have very ordinary people, um, people, you know, cashiers, uh, people who have kind of very ordinary working-class jobs, young youths in the West, people who don't even have any kind of... um, ethnic or national connection with the region or with the Kurds traveling to fight as foreign fighters in a kind of show of international solidarity, traveling all the way through Turkey to go and fight with the Kurds in this um, multi-cornered civil war in Syria. Even stranger, though, than that, that the fact that you have ordinary people who are willing to leave their humdrum, um, humdrum kind of lives, as it were, behind for the uh, dust of battle in Syria. You also have an extraordinarily wide range of political support um, from all sorts of different uh, groups on the left, from old school anarchists um, to left libertarians. If we think of some of the people who've got behind, um, if we think of some of the people who've got behind the Rojava revolution, you have, say, um, David Graeber, who's the big LSE anarchist professor, Um, the kind of theorist, philosopher of the Occupy movement. You have uh, Slav, honestly, um, supportive and has kind of tried to invite himself over to teach at the Rojava universities. Um, You have a range of different people who have been fascinated and supportive of this, um, of what the Kurds, the YPJ, YPJ stands for. And the idea is that they have this, um, they're going to establish this autonomous region, which is going to see much greater um, rights for women, much more uh, liberal social attitudes. There's going to be so-called democratic confederalism, drawing from a 1968 or anarchist called Murray Bookchin, a New York intellectual. Um, and it is all of these kinds of hopes that are vested in this incredibly desperate struggle, because the Kurds were on the front line against ISIS in um, maybe about eighteen months ago. What's remarkable about it is the lack of questioning about it. So if we think about the what is peculiar, it's this weird postmodern Stalinism. Um, all the reports from the from Rajava talk about the posters of Abdullah Ocalan, the Kurdish PKK leader imprisoned by the, imprisoned by the Turks, who's mounted this about ideological about-face and reoriented all of the, his supporters and various political organizations around the teachings of this New York intellectual called Murray Bookchin, this old school former Trotskyist, former communist turned Trotskyist, turned anarchist, eco-anarchist who has this idea of devolved social and political power, under this notion of democratic confederalism, so um, that the this ochelan, this kind of postmodern Ocalanism, the change of heart, a incredibly centralised and ruthless Stalinist third world national liberation movement, supposedly transformed into this um, broad kind of anarcho-feminist. Um, devolved eco-militarised hippie commune in on the Syrian border and every, somehow everybody's expected to buy that. And I don't. Something about it seems to me that it doesn't work. And so, but before we get onto it, um, let's see maybe if, uh, let's see what um, George and Alex
0: think. So, George. So I, th- I think like, <clears throat> probably like many people, I'm initially sympathetic or or very sympathetic because it seems like this is finally you know like in look back in anger this is finally a good brave cause it's something that at least initially you think okay so isis they're the bad guys and then people are going overseas to fight against them there's an element of you know of of all all female squads and yeah so i think because we've obviously talked about this off air um, and we know where we all stand, all the three of us. But I think my, I think it's it's unsurprising that initially you're quite sympathetic towards it.
2: Yeah, and I think like there's a, there's, I think the the backdrop to this as well, um, because for all that there's a lot of talk about the Kurds recently, the backdrop to this, of course, was that the international, the new international brigades, of course, were ISIS. It was jihadists. Those were the kind of. The, the adventurists of our day. Um, and obviously no one wanted to defend that, really. Um, it would take the most kind of weirdest, most self-loathing Trotskyist to end up defending sort of Islamist jihadist against the West, for example. Um, I don't think I, there was anybody with any credibility doing that. Now you've got a kind of... Uh, you know, sort of new international brigades going off and fighting for a secular, supposedly progressive cause and, I mean, I don't know if it's postmodern Stalinism, that just sounds like vaporwave gulag but, um, actually that sounds alright, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that um, but I think it's a lot of it is discussed in terms of individual motivations and what that means and whether that's legitimate or not and maybe that's a good place to kind of start on this, um, because if you're against this, it's it suggests that you're against all forms of adventurism that the, from the international brigades all the way through to now. Um, and I guess if we live in a sort of post-heroic age, a little bit of adventurism isn't the worst thing. That's my starting point.
1: Yeah. So I think this is one of the things that seems to be so appealing about it. It's very straightforwardly a fight which seems very easy to get behind and in a world in which you have the kind of um, the I suppose I mean it's the occupied generation goes to war right and in the world where the occupied generation have this kind of defensiveness and self-consciousness about the fact that they're castigated like millennials obsessed with political correctness um, relativistic um, always willing to take the kind of side of um always willing to take the contrarian side and unwilling to do anything to actually be serious to so everything has to be um, camp and ironic and um so and subversive and so this seems like the uh, this is the way out of that and that's i think I guess the thing which makes me suspicious in itself because I think it's um it's clearly become of all the kinds of um multiple battlefronts in the Syrian civil war. This is the one that seems to attract the most attention for this reason. And, you know, obviously who could, uh, who would be, who would be um, anyone who was right thinking would um, instinctively side with the Kurds who are in a desperate struggle to simply defend themselves against ISIS. And this was obviously the initial kind of um, interest in the Rajava struggle came about. just after the um, reports came through about what ISIS had done to the Yazidis, the massacres in Iraq, and the way they were—they'd um, opened up the slave markets with Yazidi women—and so it seemed like there was no. There was. It's a very clear, a very clear thing on whose side you could be. Yeah, yeah I
0: think. Oh, I. I'll go first because I spoke marginally before you, Alex. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just just first point. Obviously, Gulag Wave is a thing. So look it up, Alex. I think you're probably quite into it. But no, I think Phil, you've got a you know there's a really important point here, which is that yeah. So finally, for the for the kind of the irony bros or or people who have spent their entire at least online life saying things that they didn't entirely mean. Here is an opportunity to do something that you really mean. And so the question is, like, why is it that this conflict has because there have been previous conflicts even in in my life where you've it's been clear who you who you really ought to get behind but this is the first one where there's been that kind of possibility of actually you know what are the practicalities of getting there and and doing something so there's a i mean that's that's what's been really striking to me is why has this suddenly become a practical rather than a than a kind of an at arm's length question
1: a lot of it is to do with isis i think um so i mean it's worth bearing in mind i mean obviously i guess the data is hard to come by but all the data suggests that it's still many more um jihadis cosmopolitan jihadis traveling who or at least who have traveled all over the world to go and um to go and fight for the caliphate compared to the numbers who've traveled to support the kurds um but it must be the fact that um isis being so Self-consciously extreme and um, so self-consciously willing to outrage any kind of outer parameter of decency, and also ju- to justify it. There was no uh, unabashedly, unashamedly justify the institutionalization of slavery and massacre without any attempt to mitigate, or um, to mitigate, or to deny, or to any way um, diminish what they were doing. So the self-conscious barbarism of it made it um, possible, like you say, for the irony bros and the relativism to finally kind of um, to finally be ditched. So it seems to me like it's but it's just the inversion of all that relativism.
2: Well, so um, I don't know. I, I, don't, it- I don't know if that's right, because I think what, what what support for the Kurds and for the YPG and so on presents is a sort of catharsis at a sort of individual level, but also in a sort of political sense of a certain sort of third campism, which Seems to make sense amidst all the confusion of the of ISIS on the one hand and the various jihadists with whom the United States and its allies are supporting, Uh, and on the other hand, this uh, defense of Assad, which to many feels problematic um, or gets you accused of being a tanky. So between those two sides, you can say, okay, let's leave this aside, we can support the Kurds. Like, that's one. That's the one horse we can back um, wholeheartedly without all the, the hedging and and the difficulties and the problematics of the other side where you're either siding with Putin and Assad or on the other side you're siding with uh, the United States and various assembled jihadists who are supposedly moderate rebels but are nothing of the sort. I think, so there's that. The other thing is that there's a, the, on the kind of more individual level, it's that when you read, I mean, I've had this, reading accounts of the Syrian struggle, you kind of find yourself idly thinking about how kind of these basic choices of survival and defeat and death and victory and all these ideas kind of appealing. And if the modern world that many people in the West live in is bound by a lot of anxiety of facing a huge amount of choices in their lives, but with none of them seeming particularly significant, um, fighting in Syria presents exactly the opposite of what we've been saying. Um, Going to Syria means you have few choices, but Every single choice that you make is very meaningful.
1: But it's war. You're just what you just described is war tourism, right? So it is remarkable that it's this war which has got everyone wants a piece of it, right? So it's not just the Iranians, the Syrians, the Saudis, the Qataris, the Russians, the Americans, and the Brits and the French on the side, um, the Iraqis, Lebanese, you know, even like ordinary kind of you know ordinary people. Um, From a range of different walks of life, whether it be highfalutin, postmodern professors down to ordinary people, you know, kind of uh, ordinary youth, um, people with ordinary jobs, working class people, everyone wants a piece of this action. And um, because if you're looking, isn't there anything more disgusting than someone who's looking to fight, who's looking to get off on someone else's war because their life is so meaningless and boring in their nine to five job?
2: Right. And I think I think that's totally fair. And it's something that I, th- I thought that the, the actual precursor to this, because everyone reaches for the Spanish Civil War as an example, and you can fight your battles out, uh, your contemporary political battles out over what your position was on the Spanish Civil War and so on. This is... This is, you know, across the left, this is something that's regularly done. But I think the precursor to this actually is Israel-Palestine, right, where that's the proxy struggle, which everyone identified themselves around for about two decades um, in the period of the end of history. And with the return of history, somehow I think this the Syrian conflict takes on a slightly different complexion. So I sort of agree with you that, uh, you know, everyone fucking hates a tourist and doing that to, to, to find meaning uh, in someone else's actual real struggle is a pretty disgusting thing to do. But on the other hand, yeah, there's a problem with treating someone else's struggle as, as a means to resolve your own alienation. But in a way, all struggle involves that. So at the end of the day, I think the question is more should be more decided on, are your ends good? What is What are the Kurds fighting for? And have the means you've chosen, uh, are they effective in pursuing that end? And I think that puts it on a much more political ground rather than a sort of culturalist critique of of tourism and so on.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and I think that is actually the issue on which um, all discussion should focus. And I think the thing that's overlooked in all the reportages, whenever you read any kind of the serious stuff that's come out, published in... Um, I don't know, say the New York times most recently, a long read essay in the guardian following some of the all women units. The thing that's most, um, you have this kind of, um, eccentric style report you know it's the report kind of from an eccentric militarized commune is the style of the bemused journalist who goes to this place this kind of uh, remote place to interview these rather strange interesting individuals get their life stories um and that's essentially the the way in which the discussion is conducted and never and this seems to me important with regards to what you were saying alex you know to some degree obviously all kind of um all meaningful political engagement requires rising above alienation. And I'm sure that's true, but there is actually no serious consideration of the hard questions of politics in the region. Um, And simply kind of a bit of hand-waving over um, hand-waving about eco-socialism and overthrowing the patriarchy, sitting under a massive, a massive picture of Abdul Achalan isn't convincing, right? I mean, the hard questions regards regarding, um, the hard questions regarding the resolution of the civil war, whether or not um, there's going to be a Kurdish state in the region, if that's viable, possible, desirable, which you know means kind mm-hmm. of further fragmentation, further borders, the further possibility for geopolitical meddling by regional rivals. I mean, that's the actual political question. So the idea, surely, that um, they're going to create some kind of uh, democratic utopia in this utterly desperate, poverty stricken um, Backwater, one war within this whole complex layers of other wars in the Syrian civil war, is just naive,
2: isn't it? Let, let's let's unpick a little bit. I mean, I, I guess we don't want to spend too much time on it, but specifically, do you think it's legitimate to fight for echelon's ideas? Let's put it that way. Um, even even whatever uh, reservations you may have for it. And then secondly, the question is, do you think that? Strategically intervening on behalf of the Kurds, where does that lead you to? Is that the best outcome for the region and for the for the, let's say, for whether it's Kurdish autonomy or for the resolution of the conflict or for the possibility of uh, of transcending the current state of affairs in the Middle East?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I don't I don't have an answer. Um, But I have, I think it's the question at least that needs to be asked. What is it? And I don't, I mean, it's not even at the level of strategy. It's the underlying political question is Kurdish autonomy. What kind of vision is there? Is it going to be a state or is it going to be, (coughs) excuse me, is it going to be some kind of um, autonomous region in a confederal Syria um, and a confed, you know, a kind of loose federation in Iraq? Um and whether that's possible, politically viable, desirable, those I mean that's the essential kind of issue, and that then is folded into the question of the Syrian civil war itself.
2: Okay, so, so like, you said yeah, go on yeah, I mean I guess like the, 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 the again a, a funny correlate to, be, to it would be if uh, if Israel was the United States as gendarme in the Middle East, Kurdistan, a kind of socialist Kurdistan, performs sort of the same role for the Western left in the Middle East as well. And, but there, there might there might be a legitimate position I think in terms of setting an example uh, in a region um, as sort of having a working model of politics which which makes sense uh, in a region where there's very little um, there's very few forces to really back
1: well I mean but I think that goes back to your tourism thing right I mean it's not about um, having some projecting your desires onto some kind of model at, at a distance um, and you know Perhaps, I mean, hopefully this, uh, the degree of militarization that's been required to defend themselves, the fact that they've had to put so many women into uniform um, will hopefully mean that there will be, you know, that it would be a better situation, that there'll be a more secular and emancipated um, area and society will emerge in those regions. But it doesn't, whatever, you know, whatever that might look like, whatever you might want to call it, it doesn't get away from the hard underlying issue which is what will that state look like? And the reality that it's probably going to be, you know, how will it manage to evade the kind of um, corrupt clientelistic um, politics that has beset, say, the attempt to establish Kurdish autonomy in neighbouring Iraq, um, where you have politics monopolised and dominated by extremely kind of thuggish clientelistic, um, clientelistic parties And perhaps that could be replicated. Um, There's a danger of that being replicated. And those are the hard questions, I guess, more than more than ideas of, oh, it's going to be an emancipated paradise where everyone is sitting around campfires with AK-47s, dissing the patriarchy and talking about eco communes. That's that's nonsense.
2: I don't know if people have that image of it. I mean, if you if you hear reports, accounts, interviews with, uh, you know, with with. Piss pig granddad. I think people know his real name now and I've forgotten it, but the kind of it isn't that. I mean, I think there's a certain realism about the kind of brutality of the situation of the war of the material conditions there, which are not really amenable to growing anything. And I, and I mean that in a, in a kind of more metaphorical sense of just agriculture. Um, (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for the (laughs) information. In case you weren't curious, like talking about wheat, Um, but but, so I think there's a certain realism about that. I don't think anybody has, I don't know if there's that many illusions being peddled specifically about the nature of what that might look like. Um, but if, if, a, if a region of, of some sort of peace is able to be established where a different form of society can start to grow, then, then I think that's, that's, the, that's the basis of it. Are there risks of clientelism, as you, as you mentioned, or of thuggery and so on? Yeah, probably. But that's not a good reason not to try.
1: No, it's not a really, I'm not saying, it. obviously, it's not about not trying, but it's about, it's the lack of political seriousness in everyone is willing to go for the rhetoric um, without bearing in mind whether or not they support the most likely outcome, which is likely to be a ethnically homogenous, an ethnically homogenous kind of statelet for the Kurds. Um, in some kind of loose de facto alliance with other kurdish statelets in the region beset by enemies on either side and that's uh, you know that's probably the good scenario when the syrian civil war comes to an end for um, for the kurds in syria at least and i think that's yeah. the you know so that would be the real that's the real political issue not democratic confederalism and ecotopia in syria
0: so i think i think this is an an important point but i'm not so when you say political seriousness I'm just not sure that that's exactly the right term, because people who uh, go to fight for the Kurds clearly are being extremely serious, even if- That's what it's
1: I'm saying. I'm saying it's not enough to pick up an AK. That doesn't count as being politically serious.
0: Well, this is, I mean, this, is, this of course, is one of the, the questions, because somebody like Piers Pig Grandad, who's currently banned from Twitter, who's Brace Belden, um, an extremely sympathetic uh, person, who clearly has both uh, a, a kind of an underlying level of seriousness i.e. the the like he's committed basically to, to dying for this cause but is there a kind of a i don't think seriousness is the right word is there a, is there a realism is there a strategic focus in as to the possible outcomes because Political i think there's realism then yeah that's probably a better yeah, one. I mean,
2: yeah i think that's, where, because, that's, that's I mean, a better term
0: because there is a, there is a really big question so if if it if the you know if the goals for which he and others are fighting were um, plausible there's still a big question is it good because it seems like there's a, there's a kind of individual interventionism which underlies some of this um, so I saw a, a really um, a great episode of BBC um, The Big Questions where there was a discussion of humanitarianism and this have, I mean this is slightly different because this isn't state back this is very much individuals going over to there and fighting for something which you know you, you could possibly agree with but it's the calculations as, uh, as to whether the, the outcome that, that they want is going to be achieved and, and even whether this is the right kind of political principle of this kind of almost revolutionary escapism. I don't know I just think that's why it's such a difficult question because the more you get into the serious analysis of what the likely outcomes are And that's why I'm quite kind of nervous about unpacking it a little bit because it might mean that the respect that I could have for these people might kind of of unwind a little bit. And that would then leave us with the situation that if you're really serious about these ideas, then what do you actually do?
2: If we're being realistic, and I suppose this is my analysis of it, um, and I don't know if it's the correct one, but effectively you want to demilitarize the conflict as quickly as possible. And in whatever state you live in, where you might wield influence or be a citizen of that state, try to get your own government to withdraw from there uh, and campaign for non-interventionism, um, which is a different tack than going and supporting the Kurds, whether it's uh, just in your own head and emotionally or actually going off and fighting. That, real, that realism there might be like the legitimate uh, course to pursue, but when you have something to actually go and, and fight for, you might say, well, we actually don't know what the the analysis is and the cool headed analysis of where what the state of play is what are the balance of forces um, if that leads to a certain passivity then you might there might be a legitimate argument to say look fight the good fight for the for the good people and then we that will create new realities which you'll then have to evaluate again
1: yeah I think you're I think you're you're separating out the I'm not making the case to separate the political realism from the aspiration. I'm saying that if you if you sympathise with one of the most um, oppressed nation national groups in the region who've been beset and beleaguered on all sides and then were going to be abandoned effectively um, to ISIS, and if you go and support them and want to defend them against ISIS and you realise that the best that's going to emerge from that, like I say, is probably... Um, a, you know, probably like a fairly poor and backward statelet in a country that's going to take a generation to recover from a terrible, terrifying civil war, then I think that would be the best, you know, if you support that, then that's worth doing. But the um that, you know, is the actual political question, not democratic confederalism, not um the revival of Murray Bookchin's ideas, not like fighting the patriarchy, which is there is this kind of um there is this weird sinister leching over kurdish women on you know you can imagine like a tumbler with um, a tumbler with kurdish women in fatigues with ak47s there's a that weird almost
0: certainly already exists yeah, at least at least three of them so
1: trigger, called trigger warning or something um, where you can imagine you know and there is a weird leching over kurdish women um, coming from the left who love to bait kind of love to bait um, western feminism and to contrast what's happening there with, um, with Western feminism. And again, I mean, it's, um, like I say, it's inspirational, and um, hopefully the result of that kind of, the result of those battles will be that um, women's position will be improved in the long run uh, in the region, um, or in that part of Syria at least, but it's not an answer to the actual politics of the situation. Uh, we're gonna have to leave it there. So uh, thank you all very much to our um, our our audience for tuning in for this week's afe Banga Banga.